and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week, the podcast where we take the curated links on damninteresting.com, give you the lowdown, and tell you everything you need to know in a hopefully entertaining way. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Well, realclearscience.com is not afraid to ask the tough questions, right? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Why do cats have belly pouches? Well, yeah. What is a belly pouch? <laughs> like, they're not like kangaroos. What? <laughs> <laughs> it's a little hangy down part, you know? Oh, they're just fat. Well, (laughs) real clear science may want to dispute that dog lover. We can tell who the dog (laughs) owner is in this group here. Um, And yes, I am a little bit defensive because my dear first cat, um, I had her for 18 years and swore, you know, she's not fat. She's just domestic. But turns out there is a scientific explanation for the little swingy belly pooch that most cat owners are familiar with. Okay. So even though the part of a cat's underside that's wings when it walks may look like a paunch, it's not actually a tummy at all. Hmm. That bit of skin, fur, and fat is a protective layer called the primordial pouch, and it's positioned along the length of a cat's belly. These pouches are perfectly normal and healthy, says Jose Arce, the president-elect of the American Veterinary Medical Association. But they do vary greatly in size. Some are almost undetectable. And it's easiest to see a small pouch when it flops back and forth as cat runs. Mm -hmm. And we have three main theories as to why cats have these primordial pouches. So the first theory is that it protects the internal organs in a fight by adding an extra layer between claws or teeth and the feline's insides. Mm -hmm. All those really precious organs can stay protected because there's basically a little bit of padding there, right? Mm. So the second theory is that the pouch may allow cats to move faster. Because it stretches as felines run, it gives them extra flexibility and the ability to go farther with each bound, which are qualities that certainly come in handy Mm. when you're trying to evade predators or catch prey. Because as we know, Mm. cats are both predator and prey, depending on what the other animal in the mix is. Sure. And then the final possibility is that this pouch is an extra space for storing food after a big meal. I mean, this is one that, you know, I probably could have come up with. But, you know, obviously in the wild, cats are not getting two square meals a day. They just eat when they can, when they have a successful hunt. And they may store that fat from a large kill in the pouch for sustenance days later. Hmm. Another cool fact about this is that primordial pouches are not just unique to domestic cats because big cats like lions and tigers have them and for the same reasons. In house cats, the pooch will start to develop around six months of age in both males and females. So if you're curious about whether your cat's just got a plain old normal swingy pooch, or it's a little bit pudgy, you want to look at the cat's shape. So if you're looking at the cat from a bird's eye view above the cat, obese cats are going to have a rounder body than a healthy weight cat with a large pouch. 
and the belly of an obese cat comes from the top of the underside and continues all the way down, whereas the primordial pouch starts further down and is skewed towards the back legs, kind of like a saggy pants situation as opposed to like, you know, a full fat suit. I like the distinction you made earlier. I haven't gained pandemic weight. I've become domestic. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I really like that. distinction. You've just gained yeah. a protective layer if anyone is going to try to go after you. Yeah, I'm no longer wild. It's funny because I feel like I myself have grown much more feral during the pandemic. Right. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I will also say that mine is a primordial pouch as well. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from daily.jstore.org and also asks the hard questions. (laughs) Why do we listen to sad music? Oh, man. So this commonplace experience actually raises one of the most intriguing questions in the history of music scholarship. According to psychologists John (laughs) of Wyskowski, William Thompson, Doris McIlwain, and Thomas Irola. So scholars have long observed that music has a powerful effect on the body and the brain, dating all the way back to the ancient Greeks, who used music to treat disease and influence the temperament. Oh, wow. In 1958, medical doctor Agnes Seville warned that music which produces moods of depression, bewilderment, even fear, can be safely studied by musicians and critics who approach it from an intellectual standpoint but should be avoided by the tense and anxious listeners. (laughs) Yeah, it seems intuitive that sad music would make listeners feel worse, and yet many can't help but listen. Mm -hmm. Voskoski et al. write, Although people generally avoid negative emotional experiences, they enjoy sadness portrayed in music and other arts. The team discovered that sad music didn't only evoke negative emotions. In addition to sadness, such music also produced a range of more positive, aesthetic emotions like nostalgia, peacefulness, and wonder. Mm. Scientists can also measure physiological reactions to music. So in 2015, psychologists measured skin conductance levels and facial expressions as participants listened to a selection of tunes. The team proposed an evolutionary reason behind our strong physical reaction to somber music. The voice-like emotional expression of the music activates an empathetic response called the contagion mechanism. Mm. And that's why violins and cellos sound especially sad. They actually resemble human voices. But of course, music and emotion are both incredibly subjective experiences. Psychologist Sandra Garrido and Emery Schubert write, This paradox is a complex one that appears to have no single answer. These two psychologists argue that enjoyment of sad music is likely based on individual differences in a combination of emotional and evolved traits like dissociation, absorption, fantasy proneness, empathy, and rumination. For example, Schubert theorizes that in some individuals, negative emotions in the context of an aesthetic experience like music trigger a dissociative response that inhibits the displeasure circuits of the brain. Therefore, those with strong tendencies to non-pathologically dissociate can experience sad music without actually activating displeasure. Interesting. Yeah, I'm surprised that they didn't mention, I mean, they said empathy, but like part of the reason I have listened to sad music is to give myself a good cry because I always feel better. Um, Mm -hmm. And also to like not feel so alone in whatever feelings I'm experiencing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very, very common experience to want to find other people who are living the same thing, who are kind of telling your story in a Mm -hmm. way. Of course, that would also perhaps mean that if you're sad, and you're listening to happy music, it would just make you bitter. You'd be like, oh, that Katy Perry has it <laughs> Which so good. Which I have experienced. <laughs> yeah. That's legit. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. 
You haven't yeah. lived unless you've angrily lip synced to like Miley Cyrus or Dua Lipa with a sneer on your lip, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like effing Friday. Yeah, right. Fridays. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, we're going to stick with an unpleasant emotional theme here. Psyche.co <laughs> has an article called, You Can Train Yourself to Find Disgusting Things Less Gross. Ooh. Oh, yeah. nice. So the first thing the article notes, of course, is that while being disgusted is no fun, the disgust instinct can actually be extremely useful from an evolutionary standpoint, right? We want to avoid mm -hmm. spoiled food and rotting corpses, etc., but it is a spectrum of sensitivity, and those who are oversensitive are at just as much of a disadvantage as those who are undersensitive. Because, for example, if normal vegetables gross you out, you're going to be missing out on key nutrients, you won't be as healthy in the long run. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that being more squeamish or disgust-prone, as the researchers call it, has a ton of interesting correlations. One study found that when they were placed in a mock jury situation— People who had a lower gross-out threshold were more likely to render a guilty verdict, they handed out more severe punishments, and they were more likely to see the defendant as inherently evil rather than a good person who had just made bad choices. Yikes. Wow. Yeah. Another study found that people who held homophobic attitudes were more easily disgusted, not just by the idea of homosexuality, which you would expect them to feel, but also by unrelated things like bugs or mold. Hmm. A person's disgust sensitivity can affect their sociability and willingness to make new friends. And of course, at the really far extremes, you have people who suffer from obsessive compulsive disorder where the disgust alarms can be so severe that people are stuck washing their hands 100 times a day. Mm -hmm. So a group of researchers led by Xu Wang at Concordia University in Montreal wanted to look into whether disgust prone people could therapeutically reduce their disgust response and what sort of strategies would be most effective. And one of the key distinctions they found was that disgusted thoughts generally fall into two categories. There's the primary appraisal, which centers around the real-world consequences of the disgusting thing, such as, if I touch these germs, I might get sick. But then the secondary appraisal is about how well the person thinks that they're going to cope with the disgusting thing, including thoughts like, this feeling is going to completely overwhelm me, or this mm. feeling will never go away. Mm. So they took a group of participants who had strong concerns about contamination and tested them on two officially very disgusting tasks. One was touching a dead cockroach. Ooh. Yeah. And this one was weirdly clever, I thought. Drinking apple juice out of an unused urine specimen container. Oh. oh. Yeah. Like, it's just a plastic cup. It's never been touched. It, there's nothing in it. But you know what it is and what it looks like when it's full of apple juice. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that makes me laugh. I don't know why. <laughs> I have the opposite reaction to this. <laughs> You'll be like, yeah, I want to do that. That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are you sure this was for a study and not just screening participants for fear factor? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There's definitely people out there who are like, no, I want to do the disgusting thing for attention. Mm -hmm. I, none of us know what needing attention is like. So. <laughs> <laughs> But before they asked the participants to try the tasks, they coached them with information kind of meant to calm their fears. So for some of them, it was aimed at the primary appraisal response, including facts like there's actually been a study conducted where a cockroach and a human finger touched the same dirty kitchen floor and the human finger picked up several times the amount of bacteria the cockroach did. So it's sort of that like dog's mouths are cleaner than our mouths kind of right. an idea. Another group was coached only in terms of secondary appraisal, where they were encouraged to consider their disgust as a harmless and temporary emotion 
and cited studies about how having a mantra like, I can deal with disgusting things, can reduce distress and feelings of disgust. And then, of course, there was a third group acting as a control who just had to suffer through gross things without any help. (laughs) (laughs) And in the end, they found that while both sets of encouragement were more helpful than doing nothing, it was really the secondary appraisal side of things that made the bigger difference in convincing the patients to drink the apple juice or touch the cockroach. Basically, the conclusion they came to was this is an emotion, and therefore it's more effective to talk about it in terms of controlling that emotion rather than facts about how it's not really as bad as you think it is. Like most patients already know that it's not factual, so presenting them with facts has the potential to actually make them feel worse about themselves. Mm. It's the psychologist's form of gaslighting to be like, no, let me explain to you why you're wrong. Like you have to say to yourself... This is a real emotion, but also you can get over it. God, it's like so. the litany of fear from the Dune series. I think I've mentioned that a few times on here. But yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the like, I am the, f- I don't remember it, but I know what you're talking about. Fear is the mind killer, blah, yes, blah, blah. Yeah. That's the, the idea one. is like, yeah, I am feeling the fear, but fear is going to cloud my judgment. So if I can understand and accept that I am having this fear, I can overcome it. I mean, I, yeah. I don't have it memorized, but I thought about getting yeah. it crocheted to put it on the wall or something. <laughs> yeah. And now we have scientific evidence that Dune was uh, factual. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. We're going to stick with the theme here. Uh, Sciencefocus.com wants to know what causes trypophobia. Yeah, it's the neuroscience behind the fear of, and it sounds like way is familiar, of closely packed holes. So if you think of, Mm -hmm. you know, like pancakes that have had a lot of burst bubbles or the infamous lotus seeds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you do have trypophobia, um, definitely don't go to the article because they've got tons of pictures. Uh, (laughs) I do not have a sensitivity. And so this was just more of a, huh, for me. But, you know, if these pictures and these type of pictures make you uneasy, you are definitely not alone. And some scientists think the majority of people react in some form to these images. So even if it isn't like a disgust aversion, you still have some kind of reaction. Mm -hmm. So despite one in five people having severe trypophobia, which is double the estimated amount of people prone to claustrophobia, for example, Mm. the disorder is remarkably under-researched. This is essentially because nobody was aware of it until the internet developed and these images were shared in forums. Huh. Even the name, which is Greek for boring holes, like not boring holes, but like boring (laughs) holes. The name emerged itself from an internet forum, which was completely Hmm. separate from the medical community. Hmm. Dr. Jeff Cole, one of the first scientists to study the disorder, thinks that we all have it just to different degrees. Um, His research has shown that trypophobic people's heart rate can significantly increase when looking at images of whole clusters, whether it's a honeycomb or even crumpets. And some people can experience nausea, sweating, itchiness, and even debilitating panic attacks. The researchers used a technique called infrared spectroscopy. It's a method that allows you to see where the blood and activity are in someone's brain. And upon seeing these types of images, the blood was found in the visual area of the brain as opposed to the frontal decision-making areas. Hmm. So this may indicate a response to trypophobia may not be prompting us to make a decision about how dangerous an object is. It may simply just be that the brain doesn't like it, and we might never know more than this. Thanks, science. (laughs) I mean, when I saw those images, the first ones I saw were with the lotus seed superimposed onto parts of human bodies. Yes, that was the exact one that I saw. Yeah. So that's what has stuck with me personally, because... 
what do you do if that happens to you? I especially imagine, sorry, cover your ears, running my hand over the area and it all just crumpling because there's no structure there. Oh, okay, I'm done thinking about this. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I'll freely admit I've seen that image and it is horrifying. And yet, like if I just look at a lotus palm or a scone or whatever, that doesn't yeah. bother me. So clearly yeah, I'm, same. you know, not at the high end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. but I do get you it know. if it's in the wrong context, things could be very disgusting. Well, yeah. what if tripophobia never even existed until it became big in internet forum? That's an explanation some have actually put forward. It's kind mm. of the whole nature versus nurture argument, right? Are we born with this revulsion or are we socially conditioned to be afraid of them? But how likely is it you can find an adult who has never seen this kind of image before and then test Mm -hmm. them? So, and I apologize, but I'm going to read exactly how the article ended. It's getting more and more unlikely we'll know the whole truth. (laughs) Yeah. On that pun, next link. Next link. This article comes to us from academictimes.com and it's titled, It's Still Unclear What Dark Matter Is. But now we know what it isn't. Oh, that's a step, you know? Yeah. So physicists have concluded that some masses of boson particles or members of the things that could explain dark matter club don't actually (laughs) exist, meaning the parameters for locating the presumably vast but hypothetical material just became more refined. The scientists published their findings April 14th in physical review letters after noticing something peculiar, records of two black holes that are spinning way too quickly. Uh Uh-oh. The team concluded that the extremely fast spin is due to a lack of nearby bosons. According to the researchers, these particles, which actually have less than a billionth of the mass of an electron, should surround black holes and also slow them down. They're also believed to contribute to the elusive identity of dark matter. And this is wild to me. Even though dark matter and energy collectively account for nearly 95% of the mass of the universe, humans have never located a single particle of it, Hmm. which is absurd. I had no idea it was that large. Right? Yeah. So Salvatore Vitali, an assistant professor of physics at MIT, told the Academic Times, these particles slow the mysterious object's spin through a process similar to the standard principle called conservation of angular momentum. Suppose a carousel is spinning and a child steps onto it briefly. If the child then jumps off the carousel, that jump will have actually been energized by the spin of the ride. So perhaps counterintuitively, the ride technically slowed down as the child made the leap, and that's because the energy devoted to the jump was taken away from the energy of the carousel's spin. And that's Newton, Uh, there's nothing crazy there, as Mm -hmm. Vitaly explains. But when the notion is applied to bosons and black holes, it becomes a little more complex. Vitaly continues, it turns out that black holes can do exactly the same thing. If you throw your garbage bin close enough to the black hole, the garbage will fall inside a black hole, but the bin will bounce back from the black hole. And if you do the math, the bin comes back at you with more energy. Hmm. So in this analogy, the garbage bin represents a boson, and these particles get caught in the spin of a black hole, but presumably exit it periodically. However, because of the intense gravitational force of the hole itself, the bosons are pulled back in. So imagine billions and billions of the particles taking part in this process and stealing the black hole's spin energy over and over again, and that would slow down the phenomenon and quite significantly. So because the data regarding the two black holes pinpointed in the new study doesn't indicate any boson drag for the several millions of years of their existence, it can be inferred that there weren't actually any bosons, or rather any bosons of the particular range of masses that those black holes would require. 
And mm-hmm. Vitaly says, you can reverse engineer that and say, look, I just found two black holes that actually have a very large spin. So if the bosons existed, they should have spun them down. And you can use that as a proof that the bosons of those mass ranges did not exist. So, yeah, I mean, this is just science in progress. You know, we've figured out a way yeah. to identify which bosons couldn't possibly be involved and <laughs> narrow down some of that info. Getting closer. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, this one comes from The Guardian. It's called French Officials Perplexed by Gold Bars and Coins Found Stashed in Old House. Oh. Hmm. This happened in the small mountain town of Morez in eastern France, which apparently has a, quote, glorious past as a historic manufacturing center for clocks and lenses. And it's possible there's a little bit of a rivalry showing here because the Jura region where Morez is is right on the border with Switzerland, which is kind of more traditionally associated with clockmaking, I think. Either way, the town has significantly dwindled over the last few decades as manufacturing has become more automated and moved to less remote locations. So their population has shrunk so much that the local government has started buying up old and abandoned properties and trying to renovate them in order to attract young families back to the city center. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened in this case. An old three-story house in the middle of town had been lived in by four brothers and sisters, none of whom ever had any children, and when the last one died just recently in his 90s, the inheritance went to some distant cousin who didn't have any use for a rundown piece of property in another city. (laughs) Worse than that, the four siblings had apparently been hoarders to some degree, And this cousin just didn't want to be saddled with all the work of clearing out the house before trying to sell it. So he struck a deal with the mayor of Moretz to sell the house and all its contents to the government as is for 130,000 euros or about $156,000. And I actually went down a brief rabbit hole looking at property listings in Moretz. And it's a beautiful location. They're really nice little houses. And from what I can tell, the price the government paid was anywhere from half to a third of what a nice and clean property would be going for right now. So they got a good deal. Hmm. And I think the mayor herself must have had some suspicions because she, her staff, and the head of a local museum went in personally to comb the house for historical artifacts or other things the town might be interested in. And right there on a shelf behind some other knickknacks, were three jars filled with gold bars and coins. They later found a safe in the back of the house that contained another stash of several hundred gold coins, which I guess maybe that safe was full and they were too cheap to buy another one, or maybe the siblings just forgot the combination in their old age and figured it was better (laughs) to just leave the rest of their gold out in the living room. They don't explain at all where any of this came from or what they, yeah, they're just like, hey, we found a bunch of gold. Good for us. But (laughs) either way, the grand total was worth about $780,000. And officials say, you know, again, they have no idea where it came from, but the family was known to be involved in the clock and glasses industry going back several generations. They did notify the relative who had sold them the house, but it was purely out of courtesy. They weren't given the gold back. And the mayor said that he was stoical about the find. Apparently, the man had heard family rumors about a stash of gold, but assumed it was long gone. So, you know, (laughs) he got his 130,000 from the sale of the house. He's like, well, I guess that's more than I would have had. But sure. Yeah. There was nearly a million dollars of gold sitting in that house if he had just taken the trip to go (laughs) look for it. Mm -hmm. The money represents about 10 percent of the city's overall budget. So it'll be used for a special project that has yet to be decided. The mayor said, quote, I can't say it has turned us into the Las Vegas of the Jura, but it has made us smile. And, you know, (laughs) it's a nice story. It's very cute. 
I'm sitting there reading this thinking, going like, yeah, that's Nazi gold, man. Come on. Like, <laughs> you're right next to Switzerland. Like, there's no way other people wouldn't have known in the town that they're collecting this gold. You know, right. you're making your money with your clock business, but then you have to go exchange it for gold and stick it in a jar on your shelf. I feel like <laughs> they would have known. I can't imagine being the owner there and just thinking like, ah, uh, that's a whole house. I'll just sell it. I won't even look. Maybe I'm just more greedy than the average right. however old they more were. Curious. But like, yeah. Yeah. Not even take a look. I mean, it sounds like they really didn't even have to try hard at all. They were like just walking through and they noticed glinting right. behind yeah. one of the shelves. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, gold. Million dollars worth of gold. But <laughs> anyways. Yeah. yeah. No, I would go check it out. I mean, for the haunting aspect, if nothing else. But again, like yeah. if you're thinking like, oh, you know, your great aunt Rosemary dies in Lubbock, Texas. Are you really going to? drive all the way out there to look at her house full of doilies and stuff yeah i mean if they're my doilies now <laughs> yes who knows what those doilies could fetch on ebay yeah. you know that's true that's true you always gotta check that's right <laughs> next link next, next link, link. Well, Jezebel.com is informing folks that doctors have forgotten to warn people with breasts that the COVID vaccine could affect their next mammogram. Oh. So if you are a person, a human that has breasts, be aware. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Some of us do. Yeah. 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 About half of the population of statistics are any kind of indication. But anyway, mm -hmm. um, according to the Cleveland Clinic, as more women receive the vaccine, Doctors are noticing a sharp rise in their mammograms showing swollen lymph nodes under the arm, which under different circumstances could sometimes be indicative of breast cancer. The swollen lymph nodes are a common response by the body, right? The whole point of the vaccine is to get your immune system to mount a response to whatever the vaccine agent is. Mm -hmm. And the lymph nodes function as filters for trapping viruses in the body, and they often serve as one of the early detection signs for breast cancer. So when the lymph nodes swell, it's part of a larger immune system response. But because the vaccine is shot into the upper arm, doctors are not surprised that the common immune response of swollen lymph nodes is showing up in the underarm area. Another side effect that has been popping up for some people is an early or heavier period, which was observed by a research fellow from the Division of Public Health Sciences at Washington University. Unsurprisingly, a change in menstruation was not on the list of possible side effects when the vaccine started rolling out. <laughs> yeah, because why would you mention that? It only affects half of the human population. Who cares, right? <laughs> <laughs> but now, luckily, there is a formal study led by two people who were, quote, surprised by their periods after vaccination <laughs> to investigate how the vaccine affects menstruation. So mm -hmm. it's amazing. Crazy what the wider world of science could accomplish if people People whose bodies produce periods were as closely observed yeah. as those who do not during <laughs> clinical testing phases, which is a yeah. gendered oversight with a long and unfortunate history. <laughs> yeah, that's an old Bo Burnham joke is the average person has one fallopian tube. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I can actually tell you this is 100% real and affecting people because by total coincidence, I had to go have a mammogram the day after my first shot. Oh, and the lady, the tech warned me. She was like, 
like, okay, when did you get it? Okay, I need to tell you. We may find something, but do not worry because yep. if you just had your shot, it doesn't mean anything. Like, we'll, wow. you know, we'll have to check again, but your just doctors be aware. are so informed. How yeah. refreshing. Well, no, this was a female tech. This was not, uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> not the doctor who sent me back there. The but, secret uh, society of women looking out for women. I got gotcha. you. That's right. <laughs> it's not very secret, really. I mean, we're putting it on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from BBC.com, and it's titled, Whitest Ever Paint Reflects 98% of Sunlight. Oh, wow. Scientists in the U.S. have developed a paint significantly whiter than the whitest paint currently available. A test carried out by researchers at Purdue University on their ultra-white paint showed it reflected more than 98% of sunlight, and that suggests, the scientists say, it could help save energy and fight climate change. So painting cool roofs white is an energy-saving approach already being rolled out in some major cities. Commercially available white paints reflect between 80 to 90% of sunlight, according to lead researcher Professor Shiulin Ran from Purdue in West Lafayette, Indiana. It's a big deal because every 1% of reflectance you get translates to 10 watts per meter squared less heat from the sun, he explained. So if you were to use our paint to cover a roof area of about 1,000 square feet or 93 square meters, we estimate you could get a cooling power of 10 kilowatts. And that's more powerful than the central air conditioners used by most houses. Wow. Yeah, it's quite a bit. Like I could paint my roof and cut back my AC bill in the horrible Texas summer. Yeah. In the U.S., New York has already recently coated more than 10 million square feet of rooftops white. And the state of California has already updated building codes to promote cool roofs. Their benefits are still being investigated, but studies have shown that they can reduce energy demand and create lower ambient temperatures. And that has the added benefit of reducing the amount of water used for irrigation in cities. Hmm. Professor Ruan said, we did a very rough calculation and we estimate we would only need to paint 1% of the Earth's surface with this paint. Perhaps an area where no people live that is covered in rocks, and that could help fight the climate change trend. Which, you know, I had a similar reaction where I was like, well, maybe let's just start with our houses before we right. go painting <laughs> random parts of the earth. But, right. you know, yeah. Uh, so the question is, you know, how was this paint made ultra white? The answer is the new paint contains a compound called barium sulfate, which is also used to make photo paper and cosmetics. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Professor Ron explained, we used a very high concentration of the compound particles, and we used lots of different sizes of particles because sunlight has different colors at different wavelengths. So we deliberately use different particle sizes to scatter each wavelength. Mm. And then the next question, you know, can anyone buy this paint? The researchers are now working with a company to produce and sell their paint, which they say should be similar in cost to currently available paints. And Professor Ruan said, I already had an inquiry from a museum that wants to put up a display of our whitest white paint side by side with the blackest black. Mm. And the ultra black coating is a material scientists developed in 2014 called Vanta Black. Mm-hmm. And that absorbs almost all light. So its potential uses are almost the opposite of the ultra white paint. Mm-hmm. However, if you've heard of Vanta Black, you know the controversy. It is a coating of nanoscale carbon tubes and it's not available to everyone. Its invention led to an artistic controversy mm-hmm. when sculptor and former Turner Prize winning artist Anish Kapoor 
bought the exclusive rights to use it as an art material. To be clear, that means that nobody else can buy Vantablack or use yeah. it except for Anish Kapoor in the context of an art piece. Which is right. so uh, rude. So in response, so rude. Yeah, very rude. <laughs> in response, UK-based artist Stuart Semple created a pigment that he claimed to be the world's pinkest pink and made it available to purchase on his website for everyone but Anish Kapoor. <laughs> so, yeah. So there's that's a little bit of a fun artistic back and forth you might want to check out. Uh, they have sent some messages, including a couple middle fingers. Yeah. Uh, so Vantablack's developers, a company called Surrey Nanosystems, said that the exclusivity deal with Mr. Kapoor would not preclude the whitest white being displayed along the blackest black in a museum. That isn't art. We would see it as an educational display for people interested in the science and technology behind extremes of light and darkness, the company told BBC News. Now, I don't know if a company has the right to decide what is art or not, (laughs) even if you made it, but... If we can get by that loophole, I'll accept it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they can say whatever they want, but Anish Kapoor can still sue them. Like, maybe it'll be thrown out eventually, but it still seems like a headache. Yeah, I mean, I think if you put two colors in a museum, it's art at that point. But, yeah, that's just me. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a science museum. Anyways, Professor Ron added that it would be up to the company that produces the ultra-white paint, but he hoped that it would be available to everyone. Well, that's really cool. I have to, I was going through this whole thought process where you're talking about that of like, oh, okay, well, so it reflects all the light. So it would be great for somewhere like here where it's basically hot all year round. But you wouldn't, mm-hmm. like you said, it was on on buildings in New York. And I was like, well, in the winter, wouldn't it actually just offset because now they have to use their heaters more? Except then I was thinking, no, because it snows. So their roofs are already white in the winter. So, oh, yeah. you know, that was just an entirely long sidetrack that my brain went on of like, no, this is actually a terrible idea. No, wait, it doesn't matter. yeah well i mean it's quite possible that we may have that situation happen i mean i don't really understand the effects of how heat gets trapped in the air or in the light but like it might result in less severe winters even because the heat is in the air as opposed to being subtracted from the house I don't follow you, but I'll, yeah. yeah. I guess we'll find out. (laughs) These are the kind of questions science has to ask. Yeah, we just read the articles. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right, well, this one comes from Ben Coxworth at New Atlas. It's called Revolutionary Technique Produces Injection Molded Glass Objects. So we all know there's a lot of problems with plastic, right? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's very hard to stop using it because it's just so dang useful and easy to work with. Mm -hmm. But that might all be about to change with, as the headline indicates, the development of a new technique that allows glass to be injection molded just like we currently do with plastics. So the process was developed by a team at Germany's University of Freiburg, and it begins with small polymer granules each one of which has tiny silica glass particles dispersed within it. So it's basically glass wrapped in plastic. And these granules are poured into a standard injection molding machine that melts them and then injects the molten polymer into a mold. Once the polymer has cooled and hardened, the item is ejected out of the mold. And at this point, it still looks like it's made of regular plastic, Mm -hmm. but it has like secret glass inside it. So after being washed in water and placed in an oven at 600 degrees Celsius, which is 1112 degrees Fahrenheit, all of the polymer is washed out or burned away, leaving only the linked glass particles behind. So now it looks like glass, but very cloudy because there's still all these tiny spongy spaces where the plastic particles used to be. Then the item is heated to 1300 degrees Celsius or 2372 degrees Fahrenheit, 
And those glass particles draw together and fuse through a process known as sintering. Mm. And the end result is a pure quartz glass finished product. So one important factor to remember is that the item does shrink by about 15% during the sintering process as all that empty space is compressed. But they say the shape stays perfectly proportional. So you can just take this into account when you're designing your piece and end up with exactly the size and shape that you wanted. They're kind of like shrinky dinks, basically. Did you guys ever do those in the oven? Mm -mm. But I'm familiar with them. Classic 80s toy. They were fantastic. (laughs) Probably very, very dangerous. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, The other nice thing is that the sintering step only requires 1,300 degrees Celsius, which is considerably less than the 2,000 degrees Celsius required to melt glass for traditional shaping. So it saves on energy, and most importantly, the polymer particles can be reused once they're washed out of the glass structure. Oh. So doctors Bastian E. Rapp and Frederick Kotz are commercializing their technique under the name Glassimer, which you've got to admit doesn't roll off the tongue as easily as plexiglass. (laughs) But I guess at some point you start running out of clever word combinations and you got to go with what you got. (laughs) And maybe we'll, you know, have a new version of Shrinky Dinks that are just made of glass. Yeah. And can cut your children and get removed (laughs) like lawn darts. (laughs) All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Toilet and Sewer Technology Needs a Fresh Start. If Planet Nine is out there, it may not be where we think. And the Swedish law of wanderlust. So all that and more, plus all the articles we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you want to support our podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. 